Love that music. We could just we could just have the rest of the day with just some music, couldn't we? Uh, I think we are going to have a little bit more music later on, uh, certainly for our for our program this evening. But you know, that's something I've always loved about Christmas time is the music, the Christmas carols. How many of you have gone door to door Christmas caroling? I know I have. It's been uh, so many so many memories. I guess growing up, even since childhood, you know, fond memories sitting by the fire. I remember one Christmas. Uh, don't tell anybody. My my grandma taught me how to crochet. Uh, <laughs> leave it to grandmas to do that, right? I was probably I was probably eight years old, and I not that I sit around crocheting anymore, but I did when I was eight years. <laughs> you know, the festive lights, the jolly music. It seems like there's something magical about Christmas. Tinsel and lights and trees and decorations and Santa and the elves and the sleigh dancing over the moon. Doesn't look forward to Christmas morning, scampering down the stairs, running over to the fireplace and going up on that mantle to see what did Santa leave in the stocking when he came down the chimney in the middle of the night and ate the cookies and milk that we set out for him. What kid doesn't look forward to that morning and hope that they find in that stocking some special treasure, and hopefully not a lump of coal, right? <laughs> and Santa is checking his list. If you're naughty or nice, and if you're naughty, what do you get in your stocking? Well, we all—that's the stories we tell the children anyway. And it's always—it's always so fun and so magical. But maybe, maybe that's just the problem, in a way, with Christmas. Not that it's fun and happy, but this magical aspect of it, because for some of us, close your ears if you're young, close your ears, but for some of us, we reach a point in our lives where we come to believe that Santa Claus isn't real, and we come to realize that it's a story we tell our children to make them behave, to make them feel good, to make us all feel good, and we go to the store, or we turn on the radio, and we hear... Here comes Santa Claus, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then the same station goes on to play Joy to the World, Away in a Manger. And it seems that somehow when we outgrow our belief in Santa Claus, it's easy to outgrow our belief in that baby that was laid in a manger. After all, his story was so long ago and so far, far away. Shepherds and wise men and a star hanging above a stable, and a tiny baby lying in a manger. It seems just as mystical as Santa and his reindeer skipping over the moon, or a mystical toy shop at the North Pole, where elves are busy making toys for children who aren't on Santa's naughty list. Of course, now we don't teach that in church. We don't teach that that the Christ child was just another mythical figure of 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 folklore, like Santa Claus, if we did, why would we even come to church? Unless, of course, we go to church like we go to a Christmas concert to feel good about ourselves, to meet our friends and neighbors. But is that all it is? Who was this baby who was born in Bethlehem anyway? And why do we celebrate his life this season? Surely, just like Santa Claus who there was actually, actually, a historical figure by the name of Nicholas many, many years ago. And, of course, after he died, they called him a saint. 
And so they called him Saint Nicholas, and he was well known for his, for his gifts of charity and for caring for children. And there was a few, a few things about his life that we, we knew and they got passed on down from generation to generation until we have the myth, the mythical figure today of Santa Claus that's really nothing like the Saint Nicholas that lived so many years ago. Well, we have, we have stories that have been passed down to us through this tradition of Christ of the baby lying in a manger. And we see the pictures, the wise men gathered around with the shepherds, around probably a 12th century stable and a wooden manger filled with hay, just the way you would see it maybe during the Middle Ages. We imagine that, and probably all of that, especially in the middle of winter on December 25, is probably about as mythical as all the rest of it. But I want to submit to you there's one difference. There's one difference with the story of the baby Jesus. Because in addition to this legend that has been passed on through the Christian tradition for many years, we have a written account, in fact, a multi- multiplicity of written accounts of an actual historical man who was born as a child in Bethlehem, who lived his life, who grew up walking the dusty streets of Nazareth, who by all accounts was at the very least a prophet, And if you read the word of God, he was none other than the son of God. Yes, the story that we have of Jesus is a far cry from the story of Santa Claus. Not only that, but I want to submit to you that there is a far more compelling account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection than even what we find in the four Gospels of the New Testament. Now you're all looking at me like, what? Where would we find a better story of Jesus than in the Gospels of the New Testament? How could you find a better story than that? Well, let me ask you one question. If you were to set out to write a biography of someone, perhaps a famous historical figure, perhaps a friend, perhaps a relative, maybe a parent or a grandparent that you really love their life and you feel their story should be told, Would it be easier to write that biography after that person lived and died? Or would it be easier to write their biography before they were born? I hear you chuckling. Because we all know that anyone with average intelligence and some determination could find out the facts of someone's life after they've lived and died. It might be easier if you were able to, if you knew them personally, or you knew their friends, you were able to interview their friends. Maybe they kept a diary, and you could, you could read in their diary, I went here on this date, and I went here. And all you have to do is compile that information together and write it down, and you could publish it in a book, and it would be a good biography. But how would you start to write a biography of someone who's not yet born? We call that fiction. You can write all kinds of fiction, but what's the problem with fiction? It's not true. And there's never a person ever in history going to live the life of the novel that you wrote exactly to a T. Because it's fiction. You have no idea how to know what's going to happen in the future. But I want to submit to you, my friends, that there is a book in this Bible that is authentic, that was written long before Jesus ever lived, that contains the story of Jesus. An unbelievable, use that word, facetiously, unbelievable detail. That is, it's difficult to comprehend how he would know all the details 
how one man would come and fulfill all of these prophecies. If we put the pieces together of this prophetic narrative, we get a picture of Jesus, the same Jesus that's recorded in the Gospels. And by putting these two pictures of Jesus together, the historical narrative and the prophetic narrative, we have an assurance that the God we worship is no Santa Claus, is no mythical character, not the figment of our imaginations, a constructed deity to serve our own purposes, but is in truth the God of heaven whom we worship. We find the first picture of this, actually, in the very first book of the Old Testament, in Genesis. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We don't get a lot of detail, but we get an overall picture. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You know the story. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They've disobeyed God. They've eaten the fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God comes to Adam. What have you done? Well, the woman you gave me, she gave to me. So he turns to the woman. What have you done? Well, the snake that you made and put in the garden. So he turns to the snake. And he begins talking to the snake. And among what he says to the snake, he says these words, this serpent, which was truly Satan in the form of a snake, right? Genesis 3 and verse 15. I will put enmity, that's hatred, by the way. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in this statement, in this curse, as it, as it were, to the serpent, God makes a promise, a blessing to the human race that one day a seed would come, a descendant would come, a descendant of this woman who would crush the head of this serpent and put an end this problem of evil. So we go on. And through the Old Testament, God continues to affirm and reaffirm this promise that he made to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He gave the promise again to Abraham. He made it again to David. That a descendant would come, a descendant from the line of David, who would bring God's blessing to every nation of this world. But my friends... It is through the prophet Isaiah that like none other prophet that has lived before or since, the veil of future, the veil of the future was lifted and the life of Jesus was predicted in astonishing detail. Now I have to admit, in order to see that kind of detail in the prophecies of Isaiah, you have to look for it. You see, the gems of truth are not always lying on the surface. Sometimes they're buried beneath a little bit of story. And you have to dig into the story and read the broader context in order to, for the gems to be uncovered. And that's what we're going to do a little bit today. You know, speaking of buried treasure, this is also a story about the book of Isaiah. In the past century, an amazing archaeological discovery was made. It seemed to have been happened on by, by chance, actually. Down on the shores of the Dead Sea, a shepherd boy, not the shepherd boys that, that came to visit the baby Jesus, but um, a couple, couple thousand years after that, a shepherd boy 
was looking for a lost sheep, saw a little cave in the side of the cliff and threw a stone in that cave. As he threw the stone, just somewhat aimlessly towards that cave, it fell into the mouth of the cave, and he heard a very remarkable sound. Not the sound of a stone landing in the rocks, as he would have expected, but the sound of breaking pottery. And he went to investigate, and as a result of this investigation, a stash, a library of scrolls was found that is known today as the Dead Sea Scrolls. In that collection are fragments of every book of the Old Testament, including thousands and thousands of fragments of other, other books and, and literature that had to deal with, with the uh, Jewish community that lived in that area, the Qumran uh, community there at that time. Um, and scholars have been poring over that uh, for the last 50, 60, 70 years since that discovery uh, to, to f- still piece together all the information that was, that was discovered in, this, in these caves. But do you know the longest, the largest and most well-preserved scroll that was found there in that cave? Do you have any idea what it was? It was the book of Isaiah. And in fact, I, I, and as I was preparing for this message, I went online and I looked and you can find where they have taken that Isaiah scroll. Of course, it's written in Hebrew, but they've translated it into English. And I can't read the Hebrew, but I can read the English. They've translated it into English and put it side by side with, with our Bible here. And you can go down verse by verse and compare. And it is almost unbelievable how, how close they are. They're not identical. There's, there's variations, but the message is the same. And, uh, the, the text has been preserved almost to a T. Many of the verses are exactly, exactly the same, word for word. And every chapter is the same. There's nothing that's missing from one or the other of, of significance. So we know that this book is authentic, this book of Isaiah, and that it predates the life of Jesus. So um, as, as we get in and study, what is Isaiah? What is the story there? Well, the prophet Isaiah is living just before a very dark and terrible time in the history of Israel. And in fact, most of the book of Isaiah is painted, if, if you will, on a very dark canvas. The Babylonians are coming, the, the captivity is coming, and the children of Israel are going to be punished because of the deeds, because of what they have done, because they've continually, continually rebelled against God. God is going to, I mean, he's not trying to, to punish them or hate, hate on them or anything. It's just the natural result of their rebellion against God. God can no longer protect them, and they're going to go into captivity. So most of this, of this uh, uh, message is given to the, to the nation of Judah, I should say. Sometimes I say that. Uh, I classify Israel and Judah together, but they were separate at this time. Uh, Israel has already uh, has separated long since from the nation of Judah. But Isaiah is prophesying to Judah, to the king of Judah, this is what's going to happen. And as a result of, of their rebellion. But he's also making these prophecies about other nations around. All of the surrounding nations receive some kind of prophecy of judgment. But as, if you will, if you imagine a dark storm, a dark sky, but you can look at the horizon and you can see a sunset, a little glimmer of hope. Throughout Isaiah, in almost every chapter, you go through the dark, and towards the end, you see a glimmer of hope, a promise of someone who is coming, who will be a redeemer, who will restore the glory of Israel, 
and more than that, who will be a light to the rest of the world. We get a picture of the coming Christ. Sometimes in prophecy, we see pictures conflated together. You know, when Jesus gave the uh, prophecy in, in Matthew 24, the disciples said, when is going to be the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world? That's what they asked Jesus, because they assumed it would be together at the same time. And Jesus, in giving the answer, he conflates the two together and tells us both answers in one. The same thing happens in Isaiah. Isaiah talks about Jesus' first coming and his second coming often together. And it takes a little bit of digging to understand which is which. But I want us to do a little bit of that today. And I think we will, we will uh, come away with a deeper knowledge of who Jesus is. One of the first prophecies in the book of Isaiah that deals with this coming Messiah is found in Isaiah chapter 4. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 4. We'll look at verse 2 there. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be fruitful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. See this bright picture now against this dark backdrop? And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above all her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. You see the message to the children of Israel or of Judah, I should say, the message to Judah was a message that, you know, all of you deserve in your stocking nothing more than a lump of coal. <laughs> but here's what this branch is going to do. It says in, in uh, verse 4 that the Lord, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem, he's going to restore this this flaming pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. Do you remember the story of the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt? Who was leading this great multitude? Was it Moses with a staff? Yes, but no. It was a great pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. God says, I'm going to cleanse, I'm going to purge away the iniquity of Jerusalem. And again, I'm going to be the leader of Jerusalem. I'm going to give a treasure to my children who only deserve a lump of coal. Who is this branch of the Lord that he is talking about? The Hebrew word refers to a shoot, a sprout, something very small, but something that is alive, something that is growing. And you have this idea of, of the branch continued on, and we see that this is a descendant, a branch from the line of David. This is someone who is going to come from the line of David who will bring all this redemption to Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 paints a touching picture of Israel as a vineyard that God has planted. And God has done everything he can for this vineyard. And when God has done everything that he can, when God has done everything that he possibly can, this vineyard brings forth wild grapes. 
It doesn't produce the fruit that God is expecting of it. And he says there in very touching pathos in Isaiah 5, verses 3 and 4, O now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And God goes on to predict the terrible judgment that would befall Judah and Jerusalem because of their rebellion. Isaiah chapter 6, God calls Isaiah to this very special ministry. He shows the judgment that would befall. Isaiah is commissioned to give this terrible message to Judah and to Jerusalem. But in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 6, we find a very beautiful promise. We find a very beautiful promise there, but yet a tenth will be in it, and I will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be in its stump. Have you ever cut a tree down and come back a few years later only to find that around the stump of that tree the shoots are growing up and another tree, maybe several trees are growing up in its place? I see some of you are laughing. You've seen this, you've seen this happen before. This is the promise that even though Judah would be cut down, the root would remain and a shoot would come out And of that shoot, of that shoot that came out, would be the Redeemer of Israel and the hope of the world. This is the backdrop that we find for Isaiah chapter 7. This is kind of where we've been going. Now, Isaiah chapter 7 is a story. We find the wicked king Ahaz of Judah. He's already suffered a terrible defeat. But Isaiah comes to him with a message of hope. Isaiah says, Within two years, your enemies are going to be defeated. And if I were to think of this in terms of Santa Claus, I'm not preaching about Santa Claus, okay, but if I'm thinking about this, whose list is this wicked king Ahaz going to be on? He's done everything against God. He's on the naughty list. He deserves a lump of coal, if anything, right, in his stocking. And what is Isaiah? What do prophets of God typically tell wicked kings who are rebelling against God? Generally, warning, you're going to have a judgment. You've got to repent. But that's what's so unusual about this message that Isaiah comes. He comes to a wicked king and he says, God is giving you a message of mercy. He's giving you a treasure. I want you to believe it. But King Ahaz doesn't believe it. Isaiah says, ask for a sign. What sign do you want that God is going to give you this treasure? Ahaz doesn't even want to ask for a sign. So God says God himself is going to give you a sign. We find it in verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I'm actually going to read verses 15 and 16 out of the New American Standard Bible. He will eat curds and honey at the time when he knows to refuse evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken of both her kings. It seems a strange sign, perhaps. A sign not so much that Ahaz is going to see now. But when the prophecy is fulfilled, he will look back and he will see the sign. 
Well, how is this fulfilled? What child was born? Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. God gives the same message again in perhaps a different form, but using the same sign. This is Isaiah speaking. So I went to the prophetess, that's his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Now, what is he going to name this son? It's the longest name in the whole Bible. Then the Lord said to to me, call his name Mahershala Hashbaz. Mahershala Hashbaz, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. This this name, Mahershala Hashbaz, swift to the booty, speedy to the prey, is a name signifying the victory that was going to be given to Israel. Not even that they would have to fight, but that they would have victory. They would have spoil and the prey of these nations that had risen up against them. But in the song that Isaiah sings, immediately after this promise, the refrain of the song is found in the word Emmanuel. Look at verse 8, the last phrase. And and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Verse 10, speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This is the meaning of the word Emmanuel. Two names for this same person, both signifying how God would give Israel victory and deliverance from their enemies. But is that all? I have to admit to you, perhaps like the philosopher that Christina described in the children's story, I have been a bit troubled by this passage in Isaiah chapter 7 and 8 for quite some time. Not because it's troubling that God would give a prophecy to Isaiah, a prophecy of deliverance to Israel, but because of a passage we find in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Verses 22 and 23. Hold your finger in Isaiah. Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. You see, the writer of Matthew is applying this prophecy, this sign that God gave to Isaiah, not to a child who was born 700 years before, but to the child Jesus, the Savior of the world. And I've wondered about this passage for many years. Did Matthew lift a verse out of context in order to try to prove that Jesus was the Messiah? What do you suppose? Do you suppose that God was giving Isaiah a message Not just for the king, Ahaz, but a message for Israel and for the world for all time. That pointed 700 years into the future to a Christ child who would be born, who would bring deliverance not just to Israel, but to God's people all over the world. Which do you think it is? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's go back to this verse in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You have the word there, 
It's translated virgin. Now, I don't know how shocking this may have been to King Ahaz when he heard this message. You see, the Hebrew language, well, these words at least, these words are 2,700 years old. Languages change. They can change in one generation. They can change in a few years. Certainly, they can change a lot over nearly 3,000 years. And in fact, scholars today aren't for sure what this word means. Most scholars will tell you that this word that's translated as virgin means a young woman. And in fact, the context would make sense because clearly Isaiah's wife is not a virgin. She bears a child as any woman bears a child. And this apparently is the fulfillment of the prophecy that that Isaiah makes in chapter 7. It all makes sense if you say, behold, a young woman is going to conceive and bear a child. That young woman, of course, was Isaiah's wife. But we really don't know what that word means, other than from the context, and from translations that were made of the Old Testament scriptures that were Hebrew into the Greek language. The most referenced, of course, is the what we call the Septuagint. It's a translation that was made before the time of Christ. And in the Septuagint, this word, virgin, this word, young woman or virgin that was in the Hebrew, is translated here, translated into the Greek, parthenos, which is specifically and unequivocally a reference to virginity. Not to youth, but to virginity. This was a translation that was made before Christ by Jewish people who didn't even at this time believe in Christ. Is it possible that they saw this verse as a prophecy of a coming Messiah who would be born of a virgin, born of a woman? Now, this isn't the only reference that we have to this idea of a virgin birth. Because all the way back in Genesis, the verse we started with this morning, we find this promise given to the woman that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, in ancient cultures, descendants were always referenced in reference to the father. The descendant of the man, the seed of David. The reference is never made to the mother. But in Genesis 3, the reference is made to the seed of the woman. Why? Perhaps this is the first reference to a virgin birth. And in Isaiah chapter 7, we see another reference. And whatever you may think that the Hebrew word means, the Greek word that was translated in the Septuagint is virgin. And it's a powerful argument. And Matthew uses this argument to point to the Christ child. This is the one. He was born of a virgin. But is that the only clue? Is that the only clue? No. Because all the verses that we've looked at so far are building a pattern. Isaiah 4, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 7. And then let's go on to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. God is speaking about these people who, again, dark background, People who are forsaken by God. A gloom, a darkness. Isaiah 9 verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom 
will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Behold, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined, a light coming in the darkness. What is this light? Look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. No, this is not the son of Isaiah, of Isaiah's wife. No, it says, The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. My friends, this is none other than the coming Messiah. What child can take the name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father? I digress a little bit. There are a lot of people today who'd come to me and try to tell me that Jesus was a good man. He was a prophet. Yes, Perhaps he was the son of God, but you and I are sons of God. They try to make Jesus less than God. But John says in John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And here he's given the title, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. My friends, never believe someone who comes to you to tell you that Jesus is something less than God. But we go on. We don't have time to go through all of the, the book of Isaiah. We'll be here all day. But I love the, I love the, follow the pattern here. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And of course, we can't finish without going to Isaiah 53. The picture of the suffering servant, a Messiah, a deliverer who would come and suffer for you and for me. Isaiah chapter 53. For he shall, verse 2, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. My friends, this is not the story of a Santa Claus who's coming with a list of naughty and nice. This is the story of the God of heaven who came down to earth, knowing that all of us deserve nothing more than a lump of coal, but taking that lump of coal and giving us all. And my friends, this, I believe, is the story of Christmas. As a baby lay in Mary's arms, as shepherds and wise men gave their praise and homage to the newborn king, how few understood his mission. 
The disciples even didn't know fully what he came to do. And I wonder about us today. My friends, Jesus is still alive. He's in heaven today interceding for us. He has made promises to us. The prophecies there in Isaiah are not all fulfilled. Do we understand them? Have we accepted him? Do we know the one who is coming yet again to this earth? Not as a babe in the manger, but as a coming king to redeem those who believe in him. I want to challenge you this Christmas season. Don't waste the time with Santa Claus and elves on a make-believe Christmas, but get to know the one 